Well, I invite you, if you are physically able, wherever you are, to take a knee before we go to God's word. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to come and to worship you in your house. Now, what a joy it is to praise a holy and awesome God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us so that we can clearly understand your will for our life. Help us to pursue it wholeheartedly. You speak, Lord, is our prayer. Help me get out of the way. Is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, about the time that I was 10 years old, there was a movie that came out. It was a movie that was called Mighty Ducks. It's a movie that was about hockey. Now, in Houston, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but it's kind of hot. We don't have a whole lot of ice. There's not a lot of hockey that happens down here. But after that movie, there became this craze where even Houstonians were wanting to play hockey. I participated in this phone call-in contest, and I got selected. There's only a handful of kids around the city that got selected to go to a hockey game, an Arrows game. We used to have a professional hockey team. Go down onto the ice at not halftime because they don't have that in hockey games. So in between one of the periods, I'm from Houston, I don't know hockey. And so I had the privilege to go down onto the ice and take a shot. Whoever was the closest or, or perhaps made the shot would get a free round trip for them and their family to the hockey all-star game, which that year was in California. And so I remember there was about seven of us down in kind of this area right before we walked out and I was walking in supremely confident. Why? Because I had seen the movie Mighty Ducks. This was not that hard. All you did was you take a stick and you swung it really hard at a puck and then it just flew through the air into the goal. That's all there was to it. Now the problem was I had never touched a hockey stick before in my entire life. I had never even walked onto ice before in my entire life. And so we all walk out there together and, and you're kind of getting your feet and getting a feel for it. And I was the second person in the line. The first person was this little girl, probably half my size. And she gets up there and she doesn't even raise the stick very much. She just kind of puts it behind the puck and she just slides it and just, gla gl just glides down the ice. And I step up and I said, watch this. That was in my mind. And, and I kind of took it like it was a baseball bat. I, I took that stick and I just kind of reared up like this and I swung as hard as I could physically swing. Unfortunately, instead of making contact with the puck, the hockey stick hit about 12 inches in front of the puck. That threw off my weight a little bit. Of course, we're on ice, so it's a little bit slippery to begin with. My right leg goes flying out in front of me as I swing through. I barely graze the puck. It goes about, oh, 18 inches, maybe 25 inches, while I kind of glided right by it. Literally, my body went further than the puck did. I just remember that moment. I'm, I, I'm on the ice in front of a whole stadium full of people, and I just remember feeling terrified. I just remember thinking, oh, if I could just have one redo, if I could just have one more shot at it, of course, they didn't give me another shot at it. And that rest of that night and the rest of that week, I just kept going back to that moment in my life thinking, if I had one more chance. You ever had moments in life where you faced serious disappointment? You wanted a redo? You wanted another shot at it? 
Maybe right now in your life, there are areas that you, if you had the option, you would go back and redo it. Maybe there's lots of disappointment that you're facing in your marriage or in a relationship or in your career, or maybe it's just life. Maybe you look at life and say, my life has so many disappointments. It's such a screw up. It's such a failure. I wish I could do it again. Wouldn't it be easier if we just knew God's will for our life? Wouldn't it be easier if I was 100% sure that whatever that destination is, whatever that thing that I'm supposed to be doing is, I knew 100% how to get there. We're going to look today in Colossians. We're going to continue in the first chapter. Ben started it off last week. And what we're looking at today specifically is a prayer that Paul prays for this church. It's a prayer that he prays that's exactly about that, the will of God. He is praying that they might understand God's will for their life. And that prayer pertains just as much to you and I as it did to them. Look in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Paul says, and so from the day we heard... So right before this, he's explaining that Paul has never even been to this church before, but he's heard about what God is doing. He's heard about the church taking root and growing. And he's saying, from the moment that I heard about your growth, from the moment that I heard that you existed, what does he say they've been doing? Go on, it says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all wisdom and understanding. So pause for a second, because here's where we tend to go when we hear that phrase, when we hear that they're filled with the knowledge of God's will, that we kind of think if I was filled with the knowledge of God's will, that that's a destination. It's a specific location, that that's what God's will for my life is. But that's not actually what Paul is talking about. There's this interesting way that he writes it where it's called a divine passive. It's saying that the empowerment behind this verb, the filling, is not dependent upon what the individual is doing. It's not based off of what the church is going to do. The filling is God. God is the one that is doing that filling, but it's not a one-time filling. It's not a one-time epiphany where now they know the direction they're supposed to go. It's an active and ongoing filling. It's a pursuit of God's will for their life through knowledge and understanding. So verse 9 gives us the cause. But verse 9, if we stop right there, it's not complete. Let's go on. Verse 10 gives us the fruit, the effect why should they be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When we are filled with God's wisdom and understanding, it pervades every aspect of our being that my thoughts change as a result of it. My words change as a result of it. My actions change as a result of it. And so verse 10 starts to give us that fruit of what is the result, what is the effect of the filling of oneself with God's wisdom and knowledge and understanding. There's two requests that Paul has in his prayer. That he is asking that God would help them to know him and to live. That's it, to know and to live the first full knowledge of the will of God. 
Here's something that I think we as Christians sometimes struggle with where we say, I wish, I wish, I wish. And here's what Paul is helping us to understand. You don't have to wish to know the will of God. God makes it abundantly clear and available to you that when we pursue him, God is the one that fills us with that knowledge and understanding. But knowledge alone is legalism. It's not just head knowledge, it's going down into my heart, pervading who I am as a result of that. We should have a lifestyle. We should live a life worthy of the Lord. These two things go hand in hand. That the root of the Christian life is not based on what I have done. The root of the Christian life is based off of what Jesus has done for me. It's grace, something I couldn't accomplish by myself. But the fruit of the Christian life, the fruit of having a relationship with Jesus should be that my life is different. God's will for our life is clear. It's this Christian funnel where we grow deeper and deeper and deeper in our relationship with him. This is what it looks like, that it starts with a knowledge and an understanding, that I pursue this knowledge and understanding, getting to know who he is. And the more that I know God, that the more I know and experience the character of God, the more that will cause me to want to pursue holiness. This is the process of sanctification. Because as I pursue holiness, the effect of that is that in that pursuit, I start to learn more and understand more of the knowledge of God. I have deeper knowledge and understanding. And because of that deeper knowledge and understanding, guess what's gonna happen in my life? I'm going to continually pursue more holiness. This drives me deeper and deeper and deeper in my relationship with him. There was a fascinating uh, contest that a guy named Tom Wujek started a number of years ago. It's called the Marshmallow Challenge. And so what the marshmallow challenge was is he would go around the country to a whole bunch of different groups and he would get into kind of large conference type areas. He'd have hundreds of people. He'd break them into teams of four. Every team of four would get four different items. They would start with 20 spaghetti sticks, just 20. They'd get one yard of tape, one yard of string, and then one marshmallow. They had 18 minutes. In that 18 minutes, the goal was to build a structure, a freestanding structure, as high as they possibly can. That was it. They'd get into the groups of four. He'd say, ready, on your mark, get set, go. Now, what was interesting is that as he did this over and over and over again, he was able to do it with specific groups and then measure those groups against each other. And so as a result, he kind of knew how groups would interact and how successful they would be. So the average group would make a tower that was about 20 inches tall. So that's roughly the size of two spaghetti sticks together. That they could get those two spaghetti sticks and then they'd be able to take that marshmallow and put it on top and it would sustain the weight of that marshmallow. So on average, they'd get about 20 inches. Now, business school graduates, those students that had just finished their MBA, when he did this with that group of people, they specifically did the worst of anybody. They uh, did half the average. Compare that to lawyers. Lawyers did a little bit better than business graduates, but still worse than average. I know there's a lawyer joke in there somewhere, but we beat up on lawyers so much, we'll just move on. Kindergartners compared to that. These are students that had just finished kindergarten. Better than adults. Kindergartners. Better than business graduates, better than 
lawyers, better than just random adults put together. Now, fortunately for all of us, the best group, if it was very specific, were architects and engineers. We'd be very worried for ourselves if that wasn't the case. <laughs> Compare that to CEOs, you'd think, well, maybe CEOs are up there. Nope, they're still below the kindergartners. Now, what was fascinating is as he studied it over and over again, he saw the patterns for what made a team successful and what made a team fail. You see, what would happen with adults is that they would tend to right away start arguing. They would start to compete over who was gonna be in charge, who's gonna be the boss, who's the authority, who got to make the decisions. And so right off the bat, there was this conflict that existed. Likewise, they had these preconceived notions. Adults would think in their mind, okay, I know what the tower is supposed to look like. Now, the problem with preconceived notions is that your preconceived notion might not necessarily be the same as somebody else on your team. So again, more conflict. So they had preconceived notions. They didn't start right away. Instead, they were arguing with one another. They were slow to get started. And the biggest problem that they had is that they didn't understand the weight of the marshmallow. You see, the four differences with those kindergartners, the things that helped them excel and be successful is that they didn't have any preconceived notions. They didn't think this is what it's supposed to look like. They were just experimenting as they went. He said that the design of kindergartners looked wildly different than the design of adults, and yet they became more successful. The kindergartners did not fight for control. They didn't care. They were kindergartners. They were excited about the fact that they were building a tower. One of the biggest challenges with kindergartners was to prevent somebody in the group from eating the marshmallow. <laughs> he said the kindergartners, they would start right away. The moment that they said go, they were building immediately right off the bat. And here was the biggest difference, he said, between the kindergartners and the adults. That the adults thought they knew the weight of the marshmallow. And so they would wait until the very end. He called it the ta-da moment. The adults, they would build up this structure, they would build up this tower, and then they would take their marshmallow, they would try and put it on the top, they would back away, they'd say, ta-da! But unfortunately, they would do that when there was no time left whatsoever. And the weight of the marshmallow, even though it looks so light and so fluffy, when it's on top of spaghetti sticks, oftentimes was enough weight to cause the entire structure to collapse to the ground. Kindergartners, on the other hand, were constantly measuring. They would take that marshmallow, they would build for a few minutes, and then they'd stick it on there, and they'd say, oh, hey, it's working. Or they'd say, oh, no, that's not working. And so they'd bend a little bit more. Adults, on average, would test one time. Kindergartners would test between four and six different times over the course of the 18 minutes. When you compare that and lay that over our lives and our pursuit of God's will for our life, oftentimes those same struggles that adults have compared to kindergartners are the same struggles that you and I have when we're pursuing God's will. That we start out with these preconceived ideas and notions of what God's will for our life looks like. That I think God's will for me looks like this. Now, oftentimes, that's really just what I want. It's really my desires that I'm trying to superimpose on God. And I'm saying, God, this is what success looks like. I'm asking that you help me find it. That's why the tendency is not for me to pray, God, help me understand your will for my life. The tendency for me is to pray, God, please help me do this. Please give me this. Because I'm really asking for my will from God. If we will lay aside those preconceived notions and ideas and say, God, I'm yours. 
I want to be used by you. The next is that so often we fight for authority. We fight for control. Kindergartners exhibited supreme humility and not caring who got the credit, not caring who the boss was. But as we get older, what do we do? We learn to have that ego. We learn to fight and argue with God and try and say, God, this is what I want you to do. We have to have humility. The other thing kindergartners can teach us is that they start right away. Here is one amazing truth for you and I to understand today. That if I'm trying to figure out how do I get to God's will for my life, that the way I do it is by starting right now, right where I am today. That I say, God, today I want to do God's will for my life. Today I want to live for you. I can give you two things right now that I'm 100% sure are God's will for your life. One is reading the Bible. Without a doubt, you can write it down. God's will for your life and God's will for my life is for us to understand his word. That's how we are filled with the knowledge and understanding of God. The other is what we need to pray. If I'm going to pursue God's will, I need to spend time with God. I need to develop that relationship. I need to pray. Prayer helps me to empty myself of my designs and my will and fill myself with his. I say, God, I want to do what you have for me. If you look at the pattern in the Lord's Prayer, that's what it's all about. Our Father who, hall- who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It starts with this praise. And then what's that next line? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The second line is saying, God, not my will, but your will, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's trying to align my heart with God's heart and design. In any relationship, if you want to pursue that relationship, it takes spending time. If you just think of it in the context of a marriage, if you are trying to wonder what is something that I could do to help deepen my knowledge and understanding of my spouse, it's really not that hard. If you walk up to your spouse today and say, hey, listen, I'd like to help out more around the house. What are some things that you think that I could do? I I bet you that they could start writing a list right then and there. I I bet you that no one is going to be having a difficult time of saying, well, I mean, if I'm being honest, here's some things that maybe you're not doing a great job of. Now, do that in the right way because I'm not trying to cause conflict. But, But the point is, if you would just ask, there is an answer there. Why don't we ask that question? Probably because we don't want the answer. In the same way, God's will for our life is easy to find if we will pursue it, if we will seek it, if we will try and find it. And the biggest thing we can learn from kindergartners is that they measure it. Think of the ways that we are measuring our life. They had these marshmallow measurements. That the weight of this, they were constantly measuring up against their life and trying to figure out, does it sustain? Is it okay? What are you measuring your life? What am I measuring my life up against? It should be up against God's word. That I should be constantly looking at God's word and saying, does my life measure up to what God is asking me to be and who to become? Am I pursuing that? But knowledge by itself leads to legalism. No, it's a transformation of my heart and the overflow of my heart and my life should be fruit. 
I think oftentimes the reason that we stop, the reason that we don't pursue those things is because of disappointments. It's because of failures. We hit a roadblock. We hit something in life that brings us to our knees. We want to redo, but instead we're just left exasperated. Fortunately for us, Scripture is filled with people that were broken people that faced huge disappointment and failure, and yet God used them anyway. Think of Moses. Moses, who killed an Egyptian, he murdered somebody. He ran away from Egypt. He's roaming around in the desert, not just for a short amount of time, for years, for most of what he would have thought was his lifetime. He had to have been thinking, oh, if I could just have a redo, if I could just go back, I'm so disappointed, I'm such a failure. And God plucks up Moses and uses him to become one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. Think of David. David, who was this man after God's own heart, and at the peak of his life, at the peak of his kingdom, at the peak of being king, he throws it all away, or at least that's had to be what he felt like. He has an affair. He murders someone, not with his own hand, but by his design. He steals something that's not his. He had to have in that moment when he gets confronted, say, what have I done? I can't go forward, I can't do anything, and yet God continued to use David. Think of Elijah. Elijah, after he cowed down fire, he did this amazing, amazing miracle. He defeats the prophets of Baal, and then what does he do? He runs away. He runs out into the wilderness, and it says that he wanted to die. He felt like he was at the absolute bottom of the world, the bottom of the barrel. He didn't want to go on. And yet, it was in that next moment that God spoke to him in a whisper, and he experienced God in a way that he had never experienced him before. Think of Peter. Peter told Jesus, I would never deny you. Not me. I would die before that happened. And then what happens with Peter? The very thing he said he wouldn't do, he goes and does. Absolute failure. Absolute embarrassment. And yet Jesus on the beach says, Peter, do you love me? And there's this exchange back and forth where then Jesus restores Peter and says, Peter, I'm going to use you to do amazing, amazing things. And not long after that, Peter would preach the sermon at Pentecost that ignites the church and starts the spread of Christianity. Think of Paul, someone who is persecuting the Christians. Paul had murdered and persecuted the very people that once he came to a knowledge and understanding of God, the very people he would then minister to. You think that that weighed on him? We know that it did. He says it in his letters. And yet that disappointment and that failure didn't prevent him from pursuing God's will for his life. You see, no matter what baggage you have, no matter what disappointment you have, no matter where you are right now, here's the beauty of God's will for your life, is that you can't miss it if you will just start today, start right now. No matter your age, no matter your stage, no matter what you are going through, if you say, God, I want to do your will for my life, remember, it's not about the destination, it's about a continual, ongoing process. When we think of the fruit of a life, that is pursuing God, what should that look like? Again, it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, 
that the effect of that knowledge is fruit. Perhaps the greatest fruit that we can think of to examine your life and my life against, the greatest marshmallow measurement for you and I is simply kindness. Is my life a life that is defined by kindness? If people around me were to describe a characteristic that I exemplify day in and day out, would kindness make the cut? What is kindness? A Scottish evangelist and theologian named Henry Dummond, Henry wrote in the 1800s, he wrote something called the greatest thing in the world. This is what he said, kindness, it's love active. Have you ever noticed how much of Christ's life was spent in doing kind things, in merely doing kind things? Run over it with that in view and you will find that he spent a great proportion of his time simply in making people happy and doing good turns to people. There's only one thing greater than happiness in the world and that is holiness. And is not in our keeping, but what God has put in our power is the happiness of those around us. And that is largely to be secured by our being kind to them. The greatest thing, says someone, a man can do for his heavenly father is to be kind to some of his other children. I wonder why is that we are not all kinder than we are. How much the world needs it how easily it is done, how instantaneously it acts, and how infallibly it is remembered, how superabundantly it pays itself back. For there is no debtor in the world so honorable, so superbly honorable as love. Where love is, God is. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. God is love, therefore love. Without distinction, without calculation, Without procrastination, love. Jesus echoes this in John 13 when he's talking to his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on in verse 35 to say, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. That the fruit of my life and your life, if I am rooted in a relationship with Jesus, that should so transform my life that the fruit, the result of me having a relationship with Jesus is that love pervades every aspect of my life. The amazing thing about kindness is that it can change someone's life without you ever knowing it. I think perhaps the reason that Jesus was so full of kindness all the time, not only was it because he loved those other people, but he also knew exactly what was going on in their life. How difficult it is, is so often to not be kind. Why? Because of those same reasons that people fail in the spaghetti challenge, the marshmallow challenge. It's because of ego, it's because of pride. Think of that time that you've been at a restaurant before and you got poor service and as a result of that poor service, instead of being kind to that waiter or waitress, that you start to get short and curt with them. Think of the time that you were sitting on an airplane next to somebody and they were being obnoxious or annoying. Instead of choosing to be kind, you tend to do the opposite. Think of all the different opportunities we have each and every day to interact with God's children all around us. And here's the thing, we don't know what's going on in their life, but God does. 
And God has supernaturally placed us and designed us in a way that we would interact with that person at that time. And if you and I will be walking in God's will with his knowledge and understanding, we have the ability to show love, to demonstrate the gospel through action. But it's so easy to miss it. My sister, my baby sister, her name is Beth. Her and her husband, Carter, they've got two kids. Their older boy, his name is Fitzgerald. We call him Fitz. He's about five and a half years old right now. But a year ago, they decided to travel to Tennessee. It's the first time that they had put both their boys on an airplane. The very first time that Fitz had ever gone on an airplane. The reason that they had avoided it was because uh, Fitz has autism. So he's, he's pretty far on the spectrum. He's close to nonverbal. He, he can say certain things, but most of the time he doesn't understand what he's saying. And so because of that, he can often get, especially around large crowds, he can just get anxious and nervous and stressed and, and he, they just weren't sure how he'd respond. And so it was with great trepidation and nerves that they decided to book this trip. And so they, they go to the airport on the way to Tennessee and everything about the airport is stressful. I mean, it's stressful if you're flying by yourself. The, the just process is stressful. You're trying to get through the checkpoint and you're trying to rush to the next spot and things are late and you're trying to check everything all around you. And oftentimes they change the gate. And so the entire process is just making fits get a little bit more and a little bit more anxious. And they get to the plane, they sit down on the plane and he starts scripting. And scripting means that he starts saying words or phrases that he has memorized that don't necessarily apply to that context. It's something that he does in order to, it's a coping mechanism. He does it in order to cope with the stress and anxiety that he's feeling right then in that moment. And so he starts scripting and he's being loud and he's making noises and, and all the people around them are starting to get irritated at this four-year-old who's being super loud because nobody wants to sit next to a loud four-year-old. And it got so bad that they were having a hard time keeping him in his seat and a hard time calming him down. And they were this close to getting kicked off the plane. The stewardess came over multiple times. And so they finally make it to Tennessee. But the entire trip was ruined in one sense because they knew that at some point they'd have to get on an airplane and fly back. And so there was this dread the entire time they were there. They dreaded going back and repeating that process. They dreaded what would it be when we get back on that airplane? What happens if he does the same thing? And so at the end of the trip, they get on the airplane and they're, they're, they've gone through the same process. It's stressful, it's, it's anxious, it's, it's all those different whirlwind of emotions. And the moment they sit down, Fitz starts to script. And this time he specifically started singing the song Jingle Bells. Now for context, it was July. In December, a lot of people don't like the song Jingle Bells, but especially in the month of July. And he starts singing loudly, Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells. And people start to get irritated around him. And, and my, my sister, she, in that moment, she said, I knew that we had made a mistake that literally they had the conversation before choosing to get on the plane, maybe we should just buy a car and drive home. Let's not go through this again. And so in that moment, everything, all the well of emotions are right there. And a sweet lady that was sitting next to them, she leans over, she puts her hand on my sister Beth, and she says, he is such a precious little boy. And then loudly for everyone around to hear, she says, I'm so glad that he's singing such a precious and joyful song as Jingle Bells. Don't we all wish it was Christmas? And that simple act of kindness helped everybody around them to calm down. 
and it helped Beth to calm down. Now that woman had no clue what kind of experience they had had on an airplane seven days before. She had no idea what was going on in their life. She didn't know that Fitz had autism. But that one act of kindness demonstrated love that changed a life. God's will for your life and for my life. It's not that every single one of us become a Dr. Young. Here's how I know that, because God already has a Dr. Young. What God's will for your life and for my life is, is for you to be who God created you to be. And he gives you an opportunity every single day to fulfill his will for you through living out the gospel in action. Kindness, love, every day is a new opportunity.